like to talk about sharing for a minute. And, uh, and as we do, invite you um, online. I don't think I'll be able to hear you. We'll be able to hear you, but you can chat. Um, and, uh, and in the room, shout out. Sometimes when you share something, you end up with less. Right? So what may be an example when I say, okay, I'll share. But when I do that, I might end up with less than I had before I shared. What might be an example of that? Dessert. What was that? Dessert. Dessert. Yes. Yes. You share that. Yeah. Um, when you share a cookie. Oh, when you share a cookie. Yeah. Good. Good. Other ideas? Time. Yeah. You end up with less when you share your time. Any other ideas? Another one I was thinking of was money, right? We say, I'm going to share my money, and I end up with less. But sometimes when you share something, you end up with more. What might be an example of that? When you share it, you end up with more. Friendship. Friendship, excellent, yeah. Ideas. Ideas, oh, good. Yeah. Help. Help. Ah, sure, if you share help, that might... See that come around sometimes. Good. What I want to think about today, and somebody has, has offered this, it's good, is joy. There's research that says when you tell people your joys, you have a greater sense of joy. You have a greater sense of well-being when you share what is your joy. And uh, so I'm curious, um, when do people share their joy? What are examples when people say, here's my joy, I just got to tell somebody? What are some examples of that? Christmas party. Christmas party. Yeah, the more the merrier, we say. Yeah, good. Someone else? A birth or a wedding. What was the other one? A new baby, yes. Yeah, yeah, we say, oh, everybody's got to see this. This is the cutest baby ever. (laughs) Everybody's got to share in this joy. Yeah. Yeah. Any other ideas of things? Marriage, engagement? Yeah, good. A marriage? Yeah. A promotion? Getting a job? Graduation? Right? There's a whole bunch of stuff that we say, this is just so cool. I want to share this with other people. And when we do it, it increases our joy to share it. So I want to ask this question. What if our joy in Jesus increases our joy in Jesus? Right? What if sharing that joy leads to having more of that joy? And I want to think about this a bit this morning. Uh, let's just pray and ask for God to work his, uh, his ways in our hearts this morning. Our Father in heaven, we pray. We pray that we would encounter you today. And we pray for joy. Uh, you have done such great things in your purposes, in your promises, in sending Jesus And we've been celebrating this. We thank you so much for his death and his resurrection and the joy that is ours. We pray that you would cause our joy to grow and that you would help us to share that joy, that it would grow even more. So we ask for your help in that today. Holy Spirit, do your work in our hearts. We thank you that we can be confident of your presence and your goodness. In Jesus' name, our risen Savior, we pray. Amen. Uh, the title today is To All Peoples, and we are uh, to our last sermon in Luke. Um, I looked back, 
And it was in May of 2020 that we really started this. So it's a pandemic book for us. Um, and actually, we started a little bit in, uh, in December and Advent of 2019, but it's about 65 different sermons on this. And I'm really torn. Uh, I've really valued going through Luke, seeing things in ways that I've never seen it before. Um, and yet there is a sense of satisfaction that says, yeah, this has been a, a good journey, and I'm thankful for that. Uh, we will talk more about this uh, drawing in a little bit, but let me just say a couple of things just to get us into this passage. Uh, but let me say, really encourage you to have the text in front of you. There are handouts. Um, the Kids Bulletin has the text on it. Uh, also, uh, you can do it electronically uh, at the links that are there. Let me say a few words about Luke. We saw this way back at the beginning. Luke said he did some research, and he learned from those who were from the first eyewitnesses and servants of the word to write an orderly account so that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. Luke said, I went to eyewitnesses and to people who are known as ministers of the word, servants of the word. He said, I went and I learned from them. And what we've been looking at in Luke 24 is these people. In Luke 24, we have been looking at people who saw the empty tomb and the angels, and then they saw Jesus. Uh, these are eyewitnesses. And in Luke 24, we'll see today, we look at, at the people that Jesus gave a message to. Jesus gave a message to be proclaimed to all the peoples of the world. And so we see here the servants of the word. So what we get to do is to learn what Luke learned when he went and interviewed all these people. He said, what was it like when Jesus in his last days, right before he ascended, what was it like? What did he say? What did you see? And Luke learned from them what to tell us. And I think that's just the coolest thing. I think what an experience it was for Luke, but now what an experience it is for us to say, what did Luke learn by talking to these people who got to see Jesus and touch him after he'd come back to life? And, and so we've just seen, as we pick up in, in the passage we're in right now, they've just had some of these encounters. The women had gone to the tomb and found it empty and, and saw these angels Peter also went and looked, and he didn't see any angels, and he, at this point, hadn't seen Jesus, but he saw the empty tomb. We saw these two disciples who were going to uh, Emmaus, seven miles away, kind of giving up on the whole Jesus thing, it seems. Jesus came and walked with them and explained things to them, and their hearts burned in them. And then he broke the bread, and they say, it's you, and he was gone. And they've come back, and they're all sharing these stories. And so then Luke 24, verse 36 while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. They were startled and frightened. His words didn't work very well. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I, myself, touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he'd said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it, because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. Let's stop there for a second. I just got to love it, that a piece of broiled fish, and he ate it. Um, but obviously proving that he was really physically there. But there's a lot of emotion here, right? They were startled and frightened. 
And the startled isn't like, oh, what was that? (laughs) They were terrified. They were really afraid. But what they were seeing, Jesus said to them, why are you so troubled? Why do you have all these doubts? They were wrestling, trying to make sense of what was going on, even though they were just talking about the fact that Jesus was no longer dead. Even so, when he showed up, they were startled and frightened and troubled and all these doubts. And then as he showed himself to them, showed his hands and his feet, the part of him that was not covered in addition to his, his head, they then struggled to believe. But now they struggled to believe because of joy and amazement. Just, just the energy, the, the emotion in this space. But why were they so afraid? Why so puzzled at Jesus being there? They had heard the reports and they say, it's true, he rose from the dead. Well, let me just offer some thoughts in this, this going from death to life. Why were they troubled? Why the doubts? Maybe, maybe they thought that Jesus went alive to be with God. If, if you've had the opportunity to read through Genesis before, chapter five of Genesis is filled with all these people who died. Somebody lived a long time and then they died and somebody else lived a long time and they died and somebody else lived a long time and they died. And then you come to Enoch. Enoch walked faithfully with God. Then he was no more because God took him away. And I wonder if they thought, well, maybe that's what Jesus is like. He's not dead anymore, but he's not here anymore either. Or maybe they thought it was a bit like Elijah. Elijah and Elisha walking along and as they were walking along and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. And I wonder if these disciples thought, well, he's not in the tomb, he's not dead anymore, but maybe God has just taken him, right? Maybe he went alive to be with God. Or some of them had seen the transfiguration, right? They saw Moses and Elijah with Jesus talking on the mountain. And I wonder if they thought, well, maybe, maybe Jesus is just like a spirit. Yeah, he's there and you can see him, but he's not. He's not physical anymore because he's God. But this was different, right? And there is a radical difference in Jesus. So it's really important to see that resurrection is far greater than resuscitation, right? Resuscitation is taking a body and making it live again, which is dramatic, right? We can't do that. <laughs> and Jesus did that with Lazarus. But when Lazarus came to life again, it was just like he was alive before and he was going to die, right? You could bring somebody back to life. Jesus did it amazing, but he was just back into the living body that was still going to die. Resurrection is far, far greater than that. It's also far greater than the spirit living on while the body is lost. So here's a radical thing. I, I can still remember when it is that I learned this. The son of God eternally God is now human forever. The son of God became a human being and didn't stop being human at the resurrection. God has a body forever. I think, wow, this is a radical thing that happened in the incarnation. It wasn't just for a period of time. Jesus became a human being and will have that body forever so that we can relate to him as a human being. It's an amazing thing. And here's part of what's amazing about it. Our humanity is not going to get discarded. Right? Sometimes we think that, that our bodies are just like containers for our spirits. 
And, and they're just necessary for a time, but wouldn't it be great not to have the limitations of a body we could just float around? But that's not how it works. Many people have said that our bodies are just containers. They're going to wear out and we're going to get rid of them. And so then let's move on. So why worry about them? The Son of God became a human being forever. Which means that our humanity is not going to be discarded. It's going to be made glorious. And I don't think the disciples had come to terms with that yet. Right? It's not like we just get rid of this and now we move on. This is who we are. We are humanity. We are physical. And we will stay that. And the Son of God became that, to be that forever. And so this is one of the dramatic things that, that comes out of this. Feeding the poor and healing the sick and giving justice to the oppressed is a deeply Christian thing to do. Right? There are broken ways of thinking about this that says, well, feed people if you have to to get the gospel to them. <laughs> right? If that's a tool that helps you so that they'll now listen to you, then go ahead and do that. But you know they're going to die anyway. So you'll never solve the problem of the body, right? And that's a horrible way to think. <laughs> it's not Christian. And yet sometimes it's masqueraded as Christianity. We care for the body because Jesus demonstrated the physical body is, is becoming this glorious thing that he holds on to forever. And so we care for people physically, not just for their spirits. Jesus proved to these disciples his resurrection to a glorified body. He said, it's not, I left this humanity thing behind. And I think they struggled to make sense of that. They thought he would just leave this behind and go back to heaven. And he says, no, I stay human forever. And he proved this to them. He wanted them to know he really was a human and continues in that even in the resurrection. And then verse 40, uh, 44, he said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. Uh, notice that first expression there. This is what I told you while I was still with you. Well, he is still with them. <laughs> but he said, it's now fundamentally different. I was living without the glory of God. I'd set that aside, but now I'm in that glory. But back then, before I died, he says, I taught you these things. And here's a key thing. He says, I taught you, everything must be fulfilled that was written about me. And as we saw last week, here's a key thing that has to be fulfilled that was written about him is that he has to suffer and then rise from the dead on the third day. He said, I'm going to suffer and die. You've got to know that. This is, this is what scripture has said. But that's not all that scripture said. He said, here's another thing that scripture has said, that repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. So scripture, scripture said this, repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. And so this is profound. The promises of scripture, two parts. The promises of scripture, Jesus said, one is the Messiah's death and resurrection. And the other is 
that forgiveness in Jesus' name will be preached to all nations. So I'm going to dwell on that for a second. Let me tell you, I think this is fascinating, a difference between prediction and prophecy. Prediction is when somebody knows what will happen. I put knows because, in quotes, because sometimes people think they know. They think U of M will have an easy time of that game, and they think MSU will win. Uh, it turns out they didn't know that. Um, but we would say a prophet is somebody who can see the future accurately. And humanly speaking, people aren't very good at that. But people keep trying all the time, right? But a prophet, in this sense, says, I know what's down the road. I know what's coming. But prophecy, as God does it, is a promise. This is what God promises will happen. It's not God looking to the future and saying, oh, I think I can see where it's going, or in fact, I know where it's going. Prophecy is when God says, I promise you this is what's going to happen. Right? And so then what do prophets do? Prophets proclaim God's promises. Right? Prophets, in this sense, aren't the people who say, I think I know what's going to be in the future. They say God has promised what the future will be. So to put it this way, God doesn't predict the future. He makes the future. And what's the future that God promised? He promised the Messiah's death and resurrection. And we've seen that. And God makes this promise. Forgiveness in Jesus' name will be proclaimed to all nations. God will make that future. It's not just he said, okay, I did my part. Now it's your turn. You do your part. No, God said scripture must be fulfilled. And this is the scripture that must be fulfilled because it's a promise of God. Forgiveness in Jesus' name will be proclaimed to all nations. So then verse 50, uh, when he led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, Jesus lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. Jesus was blessing them in the middle of blessing them. He disappeared implies his blessing went on for a time. And it also implies his blessing is not done. He continues to intercede. And then he left him. Brings to mind for me kindergarten when my mom left me. <laughs> I was horrified. Wait a minute, who said this is how it works, right? I expect these disciples to say, wait, 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 Jesus, no, don't leave. Ah, what are we going to do now? They had great joy. There was something that they said, okay. He has proven he's faithful. He said this is what's going to happen. And they had great joy and they went back praising God. And what did they know about what was going to come? Not much. But they knew the one who promised. He said, I'm going to make it work. There's going to be power. It's going to work out. And they had great joy. And they praised God. As I look at how Luke ended this section, I think, you know, what's Luke want to say to people like us? Because Luke wrote for the purpose of giving confidence to the church about the purposes of God. And I think Luke ended by saying, God promised that his people, empowered by his spirit, will proclaim to all peoples the good news of whole being, joy, and life, meaning forgiveness, right? Being made right with God, the author of life, this whole being, joy, and life instead of death through repentance in Jesus' name. God promised that his people, 
empowered by the Spirit, will proclaim to all the nations, to all the peoples, this good news of forgiveness, of life through repentance in Jesus' name. And clearly, this could be a summary of the book of Acts, which Luke wrote. Here's what is all set up. Here's the promise. And so I think these disciples said, well, Jesus promised. He says, scripture says it has to happen. It's going to work out. So here's another surprise for me. Jesus didn't add world missions. He did not add world missions. It was always there. He said, this is what scripture said. This has to go everywhere. The Great Commission was not new. He said, this is what scripture said beginning to end. And and one of the passages, it's just so dramatic from Isaiah 49. God says, it's too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. It was always there, the promise of God. And not just a prediction, not just saying, if you guys do your part, this is where it's going. Will you please do it for me? This is the promise of God, that he will make us a light for the Gentiles. We'll see more about that in a second, uh, that his salvation would reach to the ends of the earth. So to look at the drawing, um, here is a, a picture Karen took not too long ago of beautiful sunrise. Just an amazing thing. Of course, it's hard to capture it here. What do we do? Well, some of us do exactly what Karen did and said, you've got to see the sunrise. Get the camera out. Let's take a picture of it, right? Some of us get on the phone and send a text. You say, you're looking outside right now? This is amazing. Some of us who are a little bit more analytical in our thinking, we say, wow, let's try and figure out what's going on in the science of this, right? Why is the color the way it is? And why does the sun disappear all at once? And why, you know, analyzing it. And some say, you know, we really ought to paint this. We could paint this and communicate this. And some say, let's put it to music. Let's have the music, the sunrise. Why do we do it? So uh, Alan and I traveled to um, uh, Texas not too long ago, got up very early in the morning. I forget, he picked me up at about five in the morning, something like that. We're driving down the road. And I said, Alan, you got to stop the van. Got to stop and get out. Because that was the morning of the lunar eclipse. And it was amazing. The lunar eclipse, right? You've you've got the sun and the earth and the, the moon goes through the shadow. The moon was turning red and then there was this fine line of bright white on the edge of it. And then it just all of a sudden disappeared like somebody flipped the the light off and it was just this deep red moon. And I said, Alan, you got to stop. We got to get out of the van. You got to see this. Tried to take some pictures. Turns out cell phones are really bad at taking pictures of a lunar eclipse. But it wasn't enough for me to look out the window. Alan was driving. I could see it. It was fine, right? I wanted to share the joy and it made it better when we both stood there and said, wow, the joy was greater. And so it's not the rising of the sun. It's not a lunar eclipse. It is the Son of God that we proclaim. 
First John 1, John says, We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. Isn't that beautiful? He says, we got to tell you about this. Because as you also know and join the fellowship in the Son, it completes our joy. Our joy is greater when we share it. And God promised us that joy. God promised that his people, empowered by the Spirit, will proclaim to all peoples the good news of whole being joy and life instead of death through repentance in Jesus' name. And this is what we've been looking at. This is what Luke went through his, his gospel saying, Jesus was working at this all along. Every step led to this moment. And it's just amazing they got to see it. And the eyewitnesses said, we've got to tell people. We've got to write it down. We've got to communicate this so that people will join in the joy of what God has done. And so the application, first of all, is to rejoice and to worship Jesus. And to step back, we get so used to it. But to step back and to realize Jesus did what no one else and nothing else could do. We keep trying to find something else that will solve the problems of the world. And nothing can do it. Right? Jesus replaced sin and death, all the mess of our lives and of the world, with flourishing life and peace. And he did it, not because he had to, but because of love. And it cost him everything. And he gives it to us. Something that helps me to, to dwell in the joy of this. To say what mess of the world really bothers you. Right? What is it that when you see it or you encounter it in the news or in relationships, you say, this is awful. Somebody's got to stop this. Maybe it is oppression. Maybe it's the way women have been treated and are being treated. Maybe it's the way babies are treated or the unborn or injustice or a system that is, that is broken and hurting people. Maybe it is selfishness and pride. Maybe it is people who believe false. I don't know what it is that really troubles you. Maybe it is those who don't love. What mess in the world bothers you? There is no solution other than what Jesus has done. And he did it. It's done. He finished it. It's all taken care of. Now we don't see it all taken care of yet. But those things that bother us so much, somehow, even the violence against the Son of God, he could make into a beautiful thing. Somehow, Jesus has done what no one else and nothing else could do and solved the problems of the world. And we wait to see it all. But he's done it. It is finished. Nothing more needs to be done. And Jesus gives this to all who will trust in him. It's a gift to people like us with all our mess. And so, again, it's helpful for me to say, what mess in you bothers you? And some of us are deeply burdened by the mess in us, the things we've done, the things we keep doing. So sometimes we're bothered by our background and what people have done to us, what we're experiencing today. And sometimes it's who I am and what I have done and the fear that I have. What mess bothers you? Jesus solved it. We don't see the whole thing right now, but this is what the, the resurrection from the dead did. All other joys and victories are nothing in comparison, even though we keep hoping 
that something else will do it. That promotion, that job, losing some weight, making a friend, solving a conflict, we think this will do it. And nothing else will. But Jesus has done it and he gives it as a gift. We're to rejoice and to worship Jesus. And then in that, to proclaim Jesus to every corner of the earth. And in this sense, it's being part of fulfilling God's promise. So I love what is stated in Acts. I, I just love this use of that the passage from Isaiah I read. It says this, For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I've made you a light for the Gentiles. This is a promise of God. And at first we think, well, maybe this is just the Messiah. And it's true of the Messiah. But this is what the Lord commanded us. I've made you a light for the Gentiles. I've made you to be a means by which this news comes to the end of the earth. We are a part of God fulfilling his promise. We're to proclaim Jesus to every corner of the earth. That's what his people are to do. We're to do it both near and far. And so again, I love the images of the Bible. We saw this a while ago in Luke. This man named Legion, that Jesus rescued him. And Legion said, Jesus, I want to travel with you. I want to go wherever you go. And Jesus said, return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. Sometimes what he says is go home. You don't need to go overseas. You don't need to go across cultures. Just go to your people and tell them. Go to your family. Go to your neighbors. We're to go to our coworkers and our fellow students and the people we interact with and our acquaintances. And then do this one thing, Jesus said, go home and tell how much God has done for you. Make sure they know what God has done. In other words, share your joy. And this man did. And there wasn't anybody in his town that hadn't heard. (laughs) Sometimes we are called, and we're always called, to go near. And we're also called to go far. Big milestone was hit this week. How many people are there in the world? Eight billion. Nicely done. We crossed the boundary. Eight billion people in the world today. I love this statement from the Apostle Paul. He says, It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known. As it is written, those who are not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. He says, Here's my goal is to get the news to where it's not known, to preach the gospel where Christ is not known. So, out of the eight billion people, Uh, Here's a really rough way that that some who study these things have broken it down. Roughly a third of the world would call themselves Christian. We can debate whether or not they are. Um, Certainly not all of them are, but roughly a third of the world would count themselves as Christian, and many of them genuinely are. They say something like 38% of the world has pretty easy access to Christians and to Christianity. They might go to school with one. They might be at work with one. They might have a relative who's a Christian. They could probably find information about Christianity in their own language addressed to people in their culture. They might be able to find a Bible or at least other materials online or somewhere that's for them. Which leaves something like 29% of the world that doesn't have that access. Mainly in Muslim and Hindu areas. But they're not going to run into a Christian probably ever in their lives. 
They're not going to run into material that says, hey, have you thought about Jesus? I don't know. They don't have access to it. There's not, there's not a, a, a community of people in their culture that follows Jesus. And they're not going to encounter it. That's nearly 30% of 8 billion. Mathematicians, how many people is that? Uh, 24 million. Oh, bigger than that? Keep going. Keep going. You're helping me. Two, there you go. 2.4 billion. That's a big need. Right? Pray, give, send, go. Jesus promised. He said, this is what God has said. This good news is going throughout the world. It's going to. We're to go near and far. We're to do it by the Spirit. And I think the Spirit is significant in two ways. The Spirit and the witnesses. Jesus says, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses. The Holy Spirit will give power to people to witness. And we see this throughout the book of Acts. We also see the work of God, the work of the Spirit in those who hear, just like Jesus opened their minds so they could understand. God is at work both in the teller and in the hearer. And we're to proclaim Jesus to every corner of earth, near and far by the Spirit, together. And we're to do it together as a congregation. Um, And part of what we saw earlier is a team. A team that does different parts of the same task. I heard somebody say, if if you know anything about American football, one of the cool things about American football is all these players have different specific jobs. And they all have to do it every play. Every play, all the players are out there and they all have their own job to do, though very few of them will ever touch the ball. But they all have to do their job for the play to work. They can't just say, well, I'm not needed in this play, so I'm just going to sit down on this one. Then it doesn't work. Everybody has to do their part. And this is where a congregation like ours is to say, everybody does their part. We'll do different things. But together we do it. And all the parts matter. That we are to tell how much God has done for you and for me. And that's something we all can do. And then we join together with others who can share in ways we can't. Because some of us are great word people. And you can tell because we tend to talk a lot. (laughs) And others of us aren't big word people, but we're action people. And we need both. And so we say, let's join together. We can all play some part in saying, here's what God has done for me. And they say, but I have some questions. Well, let me lead you to some people who are good at answering those kinds of questions. <laughs> right? we, we do this as a team. But also we're to do this together with God's people throughout the globe. And this is a, another pretty surprising chart to me. And this is where are Christians in the world. And North America has something like 10% of the Christians in the world. Asia has something like 15%. Latin America, something like a quarter of the world's Christians are in Latin America. And Africa has something like 29% of the Christians in the world. This is not a work of the West to reach the world. It's a work of God's people around the world. And we're to work together in this. Right? We, we each are to contribute in ways that we can. And the reality is, for people who, who look and talk like me, there are many closed doors in the world. And there are people who have the ability to, to travel around the world in ways that I never could. 
with an ability with language and culture that I do not have. And yet I've got my own place. We're to contribute in ways that we can. And so sometimes there are resources. And so this is one of the challenges that Alan has talked about with Africa Revolution is that that Americans were pretty ready to send money overseas if their people went with the money. (laughs) But if their people didn't go with the money, then they said, well, we're going to send our money where our people go. (laughs) And there is real use for money that the West can provide, right? It's not the only answer. It's not the only way to do it. But if, if we would find good ways to say, we've got different resources and different abilities, how can we each contribute to this thing? And how can we each receive what others can give? Can we do this together? Scripture says, this is the work that God is going to accomplish. That the good news of Jesus, of Repentance for forgiveness in his name will go to every nation, every people. We're called to be a part of that. So I have specific ideas um, for Advent. As you think about Advent um, in this celebration leading up to Christmas, uh, do you believe Jesus is the one and only true source of joy? Um, And I'm convinced that that's true. Everything else will disappoint. Everything else will let us down. I am convinced that he is the one and only true source of joy. So the application is tell somebody. Tell somebody why Christmas is a time of great joy. And in the U.S., we've had these debates. Is it okay to tell people Merry Christmas or not? Right? To assume that they would be celebrating Christmas. Well, I just want to twist it a different way. And to say, let's not assume that people know there's a joy in Christmas. We need to tell them there is joy in Christmas. This is proclamation, not an assumption. So we want to tell people there is joy. Christmas is a time of great joy because of what God has done. To do that, we pray, we plan, and we act. I was challenged by this quote this week. Christians, like other people, tend to get into ruts that meander through the path of least resistance. And so I have to tell you, um, my life changed a couple of years ago when I retired from my work at MSU. And I confess, I can look back now and see that, that there are significant parts of my life that have been meandering in these ruts in the path of least resistance when it comes to my engagement with non-Christians. I used to work with them every day. Now most of the people that I'm paid to work with are Christians. Then I was paid to work in a community where I had wonderful opportunities and, and times to, to gather for lunch. And I just... Wonderful feelings for me in the International Center cafeteria. Because it was just all the time. It's like, could we have lunch and talk about these things? I'd be able to be sure. It was just a beautiful situation. And now I realize that I can meander in a rut that says, well, that's not required of me now. And I realize that was a source of joy to me. I don't have to do something about it. So I'm going to tell you something that I'm going to do. And I just encourage if, if you might consider this. Um, I was just told about this book, Sent. And I've, I've learned about the author a little bit. Um, I've not read the book yet. So I'm not supposed to do that. But I'm telling you, this is transparency. This is something that I'm going to do. Maybe you would be interested in getting this and we could talk about it together. But the subtitle is Living a Life That Invites Others to Jesus. The author says... God is at work in people's lives. And God has sent us to be a part of that.
And so the expectation is there are people in your life, in my life, and God's doing a work in their lives. So the question is, how do we be a part of that? It takes praying, it takes planning, and it takes action. And I realize I have to be more intentional about this. Maybe that's happened for you. Maybe the easier thing is to say, I really find encouragement when I connect with other Christians. And that's so good. It's so good. But the easy thing to do is to then reserve my meaningful interactions with people to interactions with other Christians. And then I miss out on being a part of the joy that comes with sharing the good news, with sharing about Jesus. Another concrete thing is Thanksgiving's coming. Tell somebody what God has done for you. Genuinely say, I thank God because of this. Tell someone. And then the other simple thing is just to say, give toward taking the gospel to unreached peoples. Give something this Christmas. Say, yeah, we could back off a little bit on this present. We could do something. Give to support people who are, like Reverend Timothy saying, we're trying to do this work, but we're struggling to have enough warm clothes for the kids because money's tight. Give to support those who are in these places already and and. And yet they say, I'm challenged. I'm challenged because resources are tight. Right? God promised that his people, empowered by his spirit, will proclaim to all peoples the good news of whole being joy in life through repentance in Jesus' name. So in the email, I mentioned this idea of the end being the beginning. And the end of Luke is the beginning of the church. The end of Luke is the beginning of God's people, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to do this work. Now, I will say, it is possible to do evangelism and missions very poorly. And there are times that it has been. And we must work to avoid that. But that must never stop us from doing it the best we can, empowered by the Spirit of God. And I am so thankful for this community who has taught me so much. Of you all have taught me so much about what is a good way to begin to do this. It's not patronizing. It's not assuming you need all my help. Not not belittling the work that God is already doing in your life. John said, and probably explained this to Luke. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. So the invitation for us Let's increase our joy in Jesus by sharing our joy in Jesus. Let's pray. We do rejoice, Jesus, in what you have done. In your life and death and resurrection, we rejoice that you have taken on humanity, that you've become a human being to love us and to let us to know you and especially to rescue us from the mess that we have made. We thank you. We rejoice in this goodness. And Father, I ask that you would, by your Holy Spirit, give us great joy at this good news that a Savior has been born, lived and died and rose again. And God, we ask that you would help us to share this joy, that we would increase in our joy, in our Savior. As we proclaim the life that is ours 
through him. Jesus, we thank you. We praise you. We rejoice in your name. Amen.